You're listening to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallach. Small business owners and farmers are protesting the green WTO and NAFTA are transnational forms of autocratic governance you that so in North American free trade. Seattle has never seen anything like it. The following tear gas into the people. This is that. Thank you. Mexican workers have faced threats of violence. Welcome back to Rethinking Trade, where we don't just talk about trade policy, we fight to change it. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined once again by our in-house trade expert, Lori Wallach. So, Lori, you just wrote this big piece in Le Mans Diplomatique called The State Steps In to Save Global Economics. And in the intro, you say that trying to respond to COVID-19 has essentially forced governments to override the rules and the ideological underpinnings that define corporate globalization and that there are ways in which this upheaval could be organized into structural changes to the neoliberal, hyper-globalized order. And then finally, you describe what the world looked like before this era and how there are already some models from before that could be resurrected. Do you want to explain the piece briefly? The basic gist of it was that for all of the horror and pain of this pandemic, it is revealing things about the inherent structural frailty, downsides, damage, inequities of our current so-called neoliberal globalized corporate-led regime that create conditions for organizing for some big structural changes. And in the way that Naomi Klein often talks about corporations seizing moments of disaster, the shock doctrine, to double down on policies that benefit them. In a certain way, this moment, the things that are being revealed are the things that show the corporate rig system is the problem, which means there's a moment, perhaps, if we do the work for organizing something like a progressive shock doctrine, to use this sudden awareness of the status quo's problems to get some of the longstanding structural changes to make the rules of both our national economies and the way they connect globally to work for more people and to safeguard the planet's environment. In the article, you list these four main reasons why the COVID-19 crisis could unhinge the current corporate-led globalization regime. And the first one you bring up is forced solidarity, this point of forced solidarity. Do you want to explain this part? The pandemic has forced most residents of developed countries, many for the first time, to personally experience pain and anxiety from this regime of corporate-rigged hyperglobalization. For a long time, millions of industrial workers and small farmers and their neighbors in gutted communities, typically not right in our major coastal cities, in the United States, but also throughout the developing world, knew that this system was a disaster. It hit them personally. But now we are seeing so many other people who have been affected suddenly realizing that there are inherent, unaddressed menaces to this system that they could ignore in better times that they thought wasn't their problem, it was those other people's problem. That means in a way we've been forced into a solidarity 
in a way of the makers and the buyers to realize this is a system that really doesn't work for any of us. This is really important for two reasons. First, it's mainly been the developed country governments that have been pushing the trade and investment agreements that formalized and implemented the system of hyperglobalization, and that the politics in these countries could be shifting because of this experience is key for change. A corollary to that is it's been the marginalized people in the developed countries who have become ripe for the picking by right-wing nationalist political forces and this forced solidarity of a common problem could help shift domestic politics. But also it's the suddenness of the catastrophe, say in contrast to the slower frog in pot climate boil that can really awaken many people who have previously felt insulated from the damage of hyperglobalization to the point where you even have publications like The Economist and the Financial Times that have cheerleaded the whole Davos mentality, neoliberalism, globalization as values in themselves, have suddenly started to editorialize that maybe some more regional and localized production has merits, and that we shouldn't only think of the efficiency gods, but rather also think about issues like reliability and resilience. That is a tremendous shift. That kind of is a perfect intro to your second point, which is that there's not likely to be a return to business as usual, that this crisis has also seen some of the rules that define business as usual tossed out the window. Well, this is a very pivotal point because on the one hand, people in countries around the world have just witnessed their governments breaking every rule that the government said absolutely could not be broken. (laughs) Because in the face of having to deal with a crisis, no one in the governments are making the usual excuses of, well, we're so sorry, we can't do that very sensible thing because of the World Trade Organization or a free trade agreement or an economic partnership agreement or investor state dispute settlement. There is no thinking about what those rules are. There's thinking about how the heck people's lives are going to be saved and goods are going to be produced and people's needs are going to come first ahead of these rules. And it's very hard to put that genie back in the bottle because the sort of self-enforced, we must follow these rules, resistance is futile, that entire concept has been chucked out the window. and. You do see some really improbable officials, really people who are sort of the high priests of the current globalization system, saying, you know, things like recognizing that in the heat of a crisis, you can't let the market allocate, allocate scarce resources, that you have to actually make the government make sure that the health sector delivers for people and not allow speculation and concentration. Well, to a lot of people I'm talking to, they're saying, um, you know, that sounds really sensible to be the rule when there isn't a crisis also <laughs> when it comes to essential goods. Why, do we, why should we have rules that promote monopolies, thin, un- unreliable supply chains, inequality, etc.? So in a way, as a practical matter, because the thinking has gotten the premises have gotten shattered, but also because things are not going to go back to normal in a matter of weeks. 
there's going to be a period of time where governments are going to have to be much more engaged. And we've just seen dozens of countries, when push came to shove, decide they needed to try and make sure they had medical supplies for their residents. The US was one of the last to look into this, but the rest of the world started thinking about these issues. We, we have both as an intellectual matter, but as a practice, a context where basically the smashing of sort of the golden calf of efficiency and globalization as a goal is going to be in place for a while. And that creates openings. And one of those openings, Lori, is what we're seeing now in the debate around corporate globalization. And what you point out in the piece is that this debate is no longer a left versus right paradigm. And you say that while acknowledging the dangers of ceding this critique to the far right. Why don't you tell us a bit about this point and also how you see progressives engaging in this kind of terrain? So while all of these paradigms of globalization have been smashed in the short term, of course, team status quo, the corporations, a lot of officials are in a totally tone deaf way claiming that the answer is to double down that we need to cut all the tariffs on all medical goods. Somehow that will make things better. When obviously that's not the problem. The problem is no redundancy, not enough capacity, no system for organizing priorities of where supplies go, where the sickest people are. So while team status quo is trying to use this opportunity to double down, what's emerging is a new dynamic that is, if you will, team status quo for the old policies and the corporatists versus populists from the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, progressive populist spectrum, all the way over to say the Josh Hawley, very conservative Missouri Republican Senator version all of whom are calling for interestingly similar structural changes that have the government much more involved in making sure that the economy that comes out of this crisis is one that is more resilient to deliver necessary essential goods to people that strengthens our national resilience, our national security, in a broad sense, national security, our health, our infrastructure, Etc. And that that divide is super interesting because you know you you basically have more of a chance of having structural changes when you have broken out of some of the binary left right dynamics in this country. The example of this, for instance, is listen to this quote. This pandemic also exposed a Grand Canyon sized fault in our supply chain. We don't make critical products in America anymore. It's a threat to our health, our national security, and our economy. Americans have long known about this problem. Washington is just waking up to it. And Wall Street was hoping it wouldn't get caught, end quote. So that sounds like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Pick your choice. But it isn't either of them. Could be. That actually was that guy, Josh Hawley, the Missouri Republican. So what's ending up happening is odd combinations of Democrats and Republicans are coming together with solutions where, for instance, you have Pramila Jayapal, co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and that guy, Hawley, both calling for a guaranteed national income to be paid by the government to basically get around the inefficiencies of all these different 
loan programs and bailout programs where the money goes to the gut to the companies and then they're supposed to pay people salaries. And that kind of really smashing of partisan lines is the moment when there are opportunities to make really big change. Now, at the same time, we have to be super careful because the left and the right in the populist space can both identify the problem and even identify some of the policies that ought to be the fix. But it's super perilous if it is the right part of the spectrum that owns that. Because part of the biggest fix here is accountability and democracy. And, you know, you're not going to get those kind of fixes from the likes of, say, a Steve Bannon, who can do the critique of what's wrong with the current system, but also is, you know, in love with authoritarianism. So this gets back to where we started, which is this is a moment where progressives need to really step up. It's not going to happen by accident. The changes will happen if we organize for them. And Lori, point four is a really big point. And obviously, this is a short show, but let's talk about rebalancing relations with China and decentralizing the global production economy. What could this look like? Well, the fourth factor in all of this is something that was starting to happen before this crisis, and this crisis has sort of shown a spotlight on, which is not just in the United States, but in countries around the world, there's a growing recognition that the role China as the government and its government structured economic system is playing in this current structure of globalized economy is really unsustainable, unhealthy, perilous to both um, numerous countries' essential goods supply chains like medicine and personal protective equipment, but also serve more broadly to their infrastructure, their, you know, heaven forbid, the next crisis is that there is a horrible computer virus, not a, a, a medical virus that is um, introduced that crashes our electric grid. And we need to have, of, and part of that virus destroys some of the switches and mechanical aspects of the system. And we need a lot of now electric grade steel and we need to remake a lot of infrastructure. Right now, we are way too reliant on imports that could take you know weeks and weeks to get to us if they were available to us to be able to do that. So there is this sort of notion. It interestingly started, I would say, in, in the sort of military supply chain world. So there are Republicans who are thinking about it about just practically not having us over-reliant on any country, separate from China, just any country. And I think it started really to come to mind when the Twin Cities had that bridge fail, that horrible disaster some years ago. And that bridge was closed for a lot longer than it needed to be and snarled up that whole community because we couldn't make that kind of steel to have a long span bridge. We had to wait for it to be floated up from Brazil or sent over from China. And so that moment had a lot of people who do infrastructure planning and people in the Pentagon saying, hmm, now that is a problem. <laughs> Heaven forbid from the Pentagon's perspective, we were in a war um, and supply chains got cut. And various people who think about national infrastructure started thinking about 
you know, heaven forbid we had a major West Coast earthquake or name your problem, how would we fix things? So all of that got in the right thinking about these sort of practical issues. Of course, more on the left, there's been a lot of concern about how U.S. corporations have plotted with the Chinese government in a mutually beneficial at the time cohabitation of the Chinese government wanted the technology, the know-how, the investment, the employment. The U.S. corporations were enticed with, here's a billion plus consumers, but you know what they really wanted was, here are a billion plus people who can work with no labor rights and very low wages. And the result has been a system where in many different sectors, there is an over-reliance worldwide on production in China, if not an entire good, some key element or part or component that, or input, the raw material, chemicals, steel, that has really become either only made in China or too much of it is made in China so that there really isn't redundancy, there isn't diversification. And to some degree, this crisis is making the whole world realize we need redundancy, we need diversification, but it's really hard to separate the China factor out of that because it has been the Chinese government's plan over time as part of a geopolitical strategy to dominate in different sectors. Um, and in the same time that the US and most of Europe, not all of Europe, but a lot of Europe have made words like industrial policy, i.e. a plan to invest and dominate in a sector. In the West, it's become a dirty word. But in China, you actually saw a government with goals, making plans, and then you know putting a lot of money, just subsidies. It's You hear a lot about China cheating. It's subsidizing that stuff and then trading it or reducing the currency value to make goods that could be exported competitive, not by their actual intrinsic value, but because you're rigging the exchange rate to make imports expensive and exports less expensive. All of those tools the government of China has employed. And in the last 30 years, it was to get multinational companies to come in. But now that they have the technology, the subsidies are increasingly not being given to the foreign companies. They're actually only being given to the indigenous created Chinese companies that now have the same technology they got from the foreign companies that were enticed by the, the, the labor. And you have increasingly some of the US companies that were the big multinationals that were you know, benefiting from the cheap labor and promised the market who are themselves starting to get squeezed. And at the same time as this sort of military, we need redundancy, the big companies are less excited about the prospects of their profits in China because they're being squeezed out by the now new Chinese companies that are only getting subsidized. You've always had progressives extremely concerned about issues like corporate concentration and issues around labor rights and human rights in China where, you know, let's be blunt. A lot of workers right now in those Chinese plants that are exporting things to the U.S. are Uyghurs and other politically persecuted groups who are in forced labor situations. So all of that's come together to have a lot of governments, including across the political spectrum in the U.S., a lot of politicians and people starting to think about the fact we just need a more diversified way of producing. And some governments have gone very 
um, active in that direction. Japan, the Japanese government just announced billions of dollars of government funds to get Japanese companies to move from China back to Japan for the sake of redundancy. I think that that also creates a moment when people are thinking about where things are made to think about how we can have policies both in the global sphere, but also domestically that can try and revitalize more production in more places, which is to say some more robust domestic and regional production, not autarky, which is just the technical word for self-reliance, but redundancy. So of course, we're still going to have trade. The question is under what rules and can we diversify the sources of those imports so we're not only overly reliant on one place so if there's a problem, everything falls apart, but also can we have some more domestic production, which is not only a matter of our security and resilience, but also could have some great corollary benefits in creating some more middle-class jobs for a lot of the folks who have been harshly marginalized by this current system. Laurie, speaking of some of these rules, in the conclusion in your piece, you paint a picture of what the pre-neoliberal era looked like, and you describe some of the older rules that exist that can still be utilized today, and you also talk about new rules moving forward. Why don't you close us out with what some of those rules look like? I think that the key thing for everyone to keep in mind is there are lots of policy tools to get different outcomes, some of which we've seen succeed in the past. The real issue is getting the goals right. So if we want a, if we want an economic regime that prioritizes things like getting people the essential goods they need reliably, that prioritizes, for instance, having more localized and regional production, which both helps for the redundancy that leads to resilience and reliability, but also has the corollary benefit of more production jobs for more people, which is an income inequality remedy, but also honestly at this point is an urgent aspect of addressing the climate crisis to not be schlepping things from one production facility at the lowest environmental standard in one part of the world to the whole rest of the world spewing carbon along the way. If our goals are like that, then the tools we can use are many. A couple that I write about are just things that I think a lot of people have forgotten about. But (laughs) for instance, before the mid-1990s establishment of things like the World Trade Organization and free trade agreements like NAFTA, every trade agreement that had been established, including the GATT, the General Agreement Tariffs and Trade, the post-World War II standard of trade, they all treated trade in food differently from other goods. Why? Everyone needs food to survive. So those trade agreements ensured that governments had lots of policy space to determine how to make sure there were affordable, reliable supplies of food. So they allowed things like supply management. So you set up a quota system. You had a certain amount of imports, but you always had a certain amount of domestic production. That way you knew no matter what, you had both. If you had a bad harvest, you had imports. And if something happened overseas, you had domestic production or or stockpiles or subsidies. And that logic, I think, makes sense for food as we're about to see you know, now with, with the whole COVID crisis in meatpacking and the overconcentration in in that sector, but also it should apply to other critical sectors like medicine. And the, 
you know, the the combination of domestic and regional manufacturing and trade is how you maximize your resilience. Similarly, as far as how you would distribute around the world this kind of production without it being um, sort of random or playing favorites of the day between countries or companies, there was a whole system that existed until the WTO went into effect, which phased it out. And that system was called the multi-fiber arrangement. It was a managed trade system that distributed production quota in that case for textiles and apparel, but it was a way to make sure that either countries with smaller industrial capacity, so the Caribbean islands, smaller African countries, or countries with higher wages, the US, Europe, would still be part of producing in that sector so that all the jobs and investment wouldn't run to the lowest wages like it did as soon as the MFA, the multi-fiber arrangement, went away. So when the multi-fiber arrangement system went away, the corporate managed trade logic within years concentrated production in China and a few other Asian countries that had the lowest wages and standards. And those industries in Africa, the Americas, the Caribbean, obviously the US and Europe were just decimated. The system of basically negotiating a system of quota guarantees that each country can have some level of protected production so that there's some basic fallback. And another thing to think about from the past is the kind of rules that were in the thing that was supposed to be the WTO before the WTO. And that was a thing called the ITO, the International Trade Organization. So a sort of quirk of trade history is that the WTO wasn't the first idea of having a global body. The first idea was something that came out of the discussions after World War II, where actually a lot of progressives got together and created an agency that, brace yourself, it sounds like, wow, it's taken 50 years to get back to that, set the International Labor Organization labor standards and competition antitrust standards and rules against currency mismanagement as a mandatory floor on which the trade rules were situated. And the idea was to basically have to elevate human needs without imposing lots of one-size-fits-all dictates. It took international standards countries had agreed to as sovereigns and said, okay, here are the other things about equality and wages and fair competition and currency cheating we've all agreed on as countries. And now our trade agreements, our cutting of tariffs, our opening of markets, it's going to be premised on our agreement on all that other stuff. And that ITO, um, unfortunately, was basically blown up by the U.S. Senate, uh, which didn't want that kind of set of rules. Um, And the GATT was actually just this provisional thing that was just the tariff rules that was in a way like an annex to this ITO that got tanked. But that ITO structure, and there's a full treaty, it obviously would have to be updated, but conceptually it shows how you would reprioritize different international rules and institutions to create a more lift up global trade regime, not a race to the bottom one. And, you know, these are just some of the ideas. Entire books, papers, treatises have been written about this. The trick is going to be the fight to win the debate about what the goals are. 
because these policy tools, there are many of them, lots of good ideas. The battle is going to be really about this moment leading to a more progressive vision of the rules nationally as well as internationally. Because here's the thing, it could go either way. Like this crisis is showing the vulnerabilities, but the contest next is of power and politics. It's, it's not a lack of policy options. I think that unless progressives in numerous countries organize to demand an end to business as usual, post the urgency of the crisis, we could see a mildly adjusted version of the status quo, or we could find ourselves actually subject to some kind of a right-wing nationalist alternative. That's on us, because like those on the left, the likes of Steve Bannon can critique the extreme failings of hyperglobalization. But the alternatives offered by those who love authoritarianism, like him, certainly will not be the democratic accountability that really is a core antidote to the failings of hyperglobalization. That's all for today. Thank you all for listening. Rethinking Trade is produced by Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. I would encourage you to visit rethinktrade.org as well as tradewatch.org to educate yourself and to find out how you can get involved in the work we're doing to fight for fairer and more equitable trade policies. 